Well, as I said earlier, today we are beginning a series called Unity. Now, the title should make it pretty obvious what we're talking about. I didn't give it any sort of clever name or anything like that. Um, This was appropriately also the title of the sermon that uh, was preached. Siri gets me every time. Um, This was also the topic of the sermon that was preached uh, at the fairgrounds when we partnered with Berlin Christian Church. We thought, what a good topic to talk about when we have two churches coming together. Um, And the Wednesday, that was two weeks ago, I think, and then the Wednesday after that, my growth group met, and I just asked everybody, okay, if you were to list the top 10 characteristics or traits that you think of when you think of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, would unity be on the list? And everybody was like, I don't think so. What does that mean? We don't talk about that very much. It's not an idea that we really factor in when we come to think about our faith. And we talk about things like trusting in Jesus, becoming a Christian, following uh, what the Bible says, reading the Bible, prayer. We talk about things like the fruit of the Spirit and serving and all of these other different elements of our faith. But unity doesn't always seem to come up in the mix. And I'm going to be honest, I'll admit that in the last year or so, I think that our um, failure to talk about unity, to live for unity, to value the idea of unity, I think that's been a huge mistake. I haven't taught on it much. Um, It's one of those themes that really when you do read the New Testament, it's everywhere, but it's easy to miss if we don't really go into this thinking about unity. And so we've missed something, though, that's been staring us in the face because it is all over the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament is filled with calls for you and I to be a united people. And so if we kind of open our eyes and we start looking for it, we will see blatantly obvious uh, calls for Christians to be a people of unity. But one one other reason why I think we've just kind of missed it is because we live in a world of division. And we live in a world where there are uh, tons and tons of denominations. I mean, we don't look at church and think unity because there's Methodists and Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists and a million others and Christian churches like us as well. It's not a, a concept of unity. It's not something that's in our brains when we think about faith because we don't see it really anywhere. But when you look at the New Testament, there was one church. Yes, there was little congregations in different cities, but they were always referred to as one church. And they worked together. They gave money to other cities' churches when one was having a hard time. Uh, When the New Testament was being written, when these apostles would write these letters and send them out to churches, the churches would copy them down and pass them on to another church in a different city so that everybody could benefit from these amazing teachings. And that's how that was for roughly a thousand years. There were little splits and skirmishes along the way, but for a thousand years of church history, the first thousand years, for the most part, the church was just one big thing. And then in 1054, 1054 came the first major church split that brought about what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, Greek Orthodox Church. Um, And that lasted for a while again, little fights and disagreements along the way and little groups that split off. But then another 500 years later, uh, Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation, uh, which was then kind of like a snowball to split, 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 that's still happening now. Um, One of the biggest uh, current 
things in the world of American Christianity is the United Methodist Church is trying to figure out how to split and do so nicely. And that's complicated, and it's a, and it's a big, messy, theologically ridden or filled up thing. It's just a big, messy situation. And these splits have just been kind of moving and moving and moving, and we are the result. We sit here today, the result of thousand, a thousand years of churches splitting and splitting and splitting and splitting, to now we have this denomination that we call the Christian church. And Christianity is, without a doubt, the most splintered religion in the world. And it's, there's not even a close second. Like, you look at other, like, Islam and, and Buddhism and all that stuff. Like, yes, there's different sects of it. But Christianity, by and far, blows everybody else out of the water with how many little specific denominations we have. And now, I'm not here to say that that the Protestant Reformation shouldn't have happened. I'm not here to say that, you know, there weren't corruptions in the church that caused these things to happen. I'm not saying that, you know, we should all just kind of lump back in together and call ourselves Catholic or anything like that. What I am saying is that when you look in the New Testament, unity is a big deal, and we don't value it, and that's wrong. That we've missed something for a long time, we haven't valued it. We don't even think to value it, whether in our church, local church settings or when it talks to our, comes to our relationship with other churches. We just don't think about it. But unity is a big, big deal. And so we need to understand it. We need to think about it. And we need to practice it. And we've missed it so much so that when I say the word unity, you're probably still like, I don't even actually fully get what that is. Like, what, what is unity when it applies to our faith? Like, how does that even play out? Like, okay, Anthony, are you, are you saying that we just need to all get along really well? Are you saying that we all need to kind of partner together to accomplish a common goal? Is that the kind of unity you mean? Are you saying we all kind of need to believe the same basic things? Are you saying that um, there's supposed to be unity here in our congregation or with us and other congregations? Uh, well, the answer to all of those is yes. Like, all of that kind of balls up into this topic of unity. And, and so being a united people is kind of a complex thing, but when you start looking at what God intended, it becomes a very beautiful thing. So when we talk about unity, I want you to start to imagine a place where Christians can disagree about lots of things, certain theological issues. Um, we can disagree on how a building should be built, where it should be built, how to fundraise money or whether not to fundraise money. We can talk about what kind of sound systems to use and graphics. We can talk about and disagree about all kinds of things, but we can, when we express that disagreement, we can still love one another and care about each other more than the issue we're arguing about. We can disagree in a way where we are respectful and kind, where we work together knowing that our purpose to live for Jesus is bigger than usually the issue we want to argue about or our, even our own personal desires on that issue. Uh, when we talk about unity, I want you to imagine a place where every single person is so grateful for the forgiveness they have in Jesus that they couldn't imagine holding a grudge against someone else. Like, I've been forgiven of so much, how, how dare me to hold a grudge on somebody else? Or I've, I've been forgiven so much, how dare I look like I'm better than somebody else, or act like I'm better than somebody else. That's an attitude for unity. Imagine a place where Christians truly loved one another, because love is the foundation that unity is built on, where we're willing 
to let certain things that we want go so that we can still be with the people that we love. We're slight different interpretations of Scripture and slightly different ways that we want to practice and express our faith. Um, Those aren't a cause to separate, but rather an opportunity to learn from one another and say, okay, you see it this way, I see it differently. Let's figure this out. Let's talk about it. Let's learn to appreciate both uh, sides of this uh, dispute. Imagine a place where Christians were more committed to reconciling with each other and, and maintaining peace with the people that we care about than running off and finding another church anytime somebody offended us or something was done a way that we didn't like or we got our feelings hurt. It's hard to imagine that because we live in a world where that's kind of the way it is. We look at the church the way we look at going to the grocery store. The grocery store hasn't, if they don't carry enough of the things you want, We'll just go to the next store over. You know, they don't have the selection you want. There's always another store. We kind of think the church is the same way, and we church hop and church move and, and go around. And, and I'm not to say that there shouldn't be congregations, but we view these relationships kind of disposable. And that's not what God wants for us. And so this beautiful and difficult thing called unity is something I think that Jesus has wanted for his followers and it has not been a priority for a long time. And it has hurt us and it has confused the world. Like, you ask anybody out there, like, why are there so many denominations? Like, who's right? Methodists, Lutherans, Christians, Baptists? How do we know? They don't, they don't get it. And also, it's grieved our Heavenly Father. I think he looks at the broken, splintered, fractured nature of his people and grieves that. And he wonders, how have they missed this message that has been so incredibly important in the pages of the scriptures I've given them? I just want to read a few passages just to help you get the idea of what to look for when they're talking about unity, but also just to realize it's everywhere and we need to pay attention to it. Ephesians chapter 4, we read this at the fairgrounds. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, he's writing as a pastor to the church in Ephesus, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one church body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's he's listing all the things that we should have in common as believers. He says, who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Corinthians, Paul again, writing to a different church, says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and let that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians, Paul again, writing to a different church. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In James, not written by Paul, written by James, he says this, But the wisdom from above, this one is a little more vague because it doesn't talk about unity, but he says wisdom, meaning the wise way for us to live. It is pure, then 
peaceable, meaning I'm no, we don't have to fight and get our way. Fine, I'm going to go over here and not talk to you anymore. I'm going to, no, peace. We get along. It's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Still unity language. Second Timothy, again, we're back to Paul, written to a guy named Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with foolish Ignorant controversies, which is, honestly, the majority of what we fight about. The majority of things churches fight about are not mission-critical things. It's not theological essentials. He says, ignore those foolish, ignorant controversies. And then he lists a few things. He says, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, would you say that Christians do that anymore? Let me say it this way. The last time you were on Facebook, would you say that Christians do this anymore? Oh, man, Christians are so mean. I know a guy who recently um, walked away from church and walked away from the faith. He says he's an atheist now and um, puts stuff like that online. You know, he's kind of an atheistic evangelist for now. Um, and the people that are the most confrontational are Christians. And it's like, boy, how many times has somebody been led back to Jesus because somebody scolded them with Bible verses or a sense of superiority? This doesn't work that way. So hopefully you've noticed the theme. This is all over the New Testament. These are just a few. Um, peace, oneness, one body, one, uh, one body, one mind, same mind, no divisions, same love, same judgment, full of mercy, peaceable, all of that stuff. That's unity language. And it's not only important that we start recognizing it, um, but it's also realized that we need to take this seriously. And that God takes it seriously when we are people who ignore this and we become people of division. This is another thing Paul wrote in the New Testament letter of Titus. He tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies. This is the one I met earlier when he lists a few things. Um, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. You know, you might say, for us modern days, our controversies might be you're arguing about music, Carpet color, you know, churches have split over all kinds of that stuff before. He says, these things are unprofitable and worthless. For as a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Excommunication, kicked out of the church for being divisive. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Meaning, you Condemn yourself before God when you prove that you cannot be a person of peace and love and unity. So, we get this, these warnings. You're divisive. You get two strikes. And you're out of there. No more. God is not going to put up with it, and his church should not put up with it. Being a person of unity is not something um, that is vital, and being a place of unity. Unity is something beautiful that should be protected and nourished. And again, we've just kind of missed this so much and so now that we've kind of set the stage for how it's important and it's all of a big deal, I want to begin to spend the rest of our time in John chapter 17. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and get that out. If you want to follow along on your phone, uh, that's great too. You can make notes in your Bible or on your phone, um, or the verses will be on the screen here. Now, um, in John 17, Jesus is praying 
this pretty lengthy prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. Like in your Bible, the heading will probably say the high priestly prayer. Um, and, and what's interesting is he's praying right before he gets up to go to the cross. So this is right before he's going to be arrested and beaten and flogged and crucified and killed. And he takes the time to pray. So here's my thoughts on that. Anything Jesus prays right before this horrible thing must be important. Because if I know 100% certainty that I'm going before uh, something that's going to be horrible, you know what I'm going to be praying? Oh, Jesus, help me, Lord, help me. Please get me out of it. Help, Lord, I don't want to go through it. Please get me out of this. All I can think about is me. Help, 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 right? That's the kind of stuff I'm going to pray. Jesus is not thinking right of himself. He's thinking about those he's praying for. So this is a big thing. We need to pay attention to it. And he starts off by praying for the apostles, the men he spent his life with, training them to share the gospel. He knows the bulk of his life is over, or bulk of his ministry is over, and that these guys are going to be able to carry on the mission, share the good news with the world, and that they're going to go out into a world that really doesn't like them, a world that doesn't understand their message, a world that's going to try to even kill them. And so then after he prays for these men, then Jesus shifts gears, and guess what? He prays for you. Did you know that? Do you know that Jesus prayed directly for you and me in the New Testament? He does. It's really interesting. Here's what he does. John 17, we'll start in verse 20. He says, Jesus, I do not ask for these only, meaning I'm not just praying for these 12 guys that are sitting here with me. Actually, it was 11 that were sitting there with him. Judas was off betraying. He says, I do not pray only for these guys, Father, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning everybody who becomes a Christian through the ministry of those apostles throughout the centuries. So as the gospel message has moved throughout the centuries, based on the word of these original witnesses, anybody that becomes a Christian after that, that's who he's praying for. That's us. Because a lot of their words were written down in what we call the Bible. And that is what has drawn us to Jesus. And so Jesus stands in the shadow of the cross, thinking not of himself, but of you and me. And then he goes on to say, okay, here's what I want to pray for those people that are going to hear this message throughout the centuries. Verse 21, Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may all be one. That they may all be one. Now, what's really important to understand is the reason Jesus prays that you and I would be united, the reason he asked God that he would help us to be united is because unity is a supernatural gift from God. It is something that God grants to us. We're not going to be united just by trying harder. We're not. We're not going to be able to put together a united people just by trying to be nice and grit our teeth when people drive us crazy. It's just not how it works. In fact, one peek at human history should reveal how lousy humans are at being a united people. Uh, one thing that's interesting about the internet that has allowed scientists to study is arguments. Because people start having arguments online, comments in the, in the comment section, and they can graph how the argument played out. They can go back and see who said what, when, okay? And they, they, uh, who have, the scientists who have kind of studied this and started paying attention to it, they've noticed a pattern to online arguments, okay? So it starts out, two people or a group of people 
start arguing back and forth. We're better than you. You're horrible. I hate you. I hate you too. You know, that kind of stuff. The anti-love letters type things. And they, they argue with each other, and people start joining in in the comments. Yeah, you guys are awful. Yeah, no, you guys are awful. Until the group gets big enough. And then what happens is they start, stop talking to each other, and they turn in and they start talking to the people who agree with them. And then they realize not everybody agrees with absolutely everything I believe. And then they start arguing with each other. So the fight turns from the, the oppo- opposing sides to they start fighting with the people on their side. Most of the time, that's the way online arguments play out. That we can't even get along with the people that we have the best chance of getting along with. We still find reasons to fight. And unfortunately, church history has kind of played out that very same way. Tom Rainer, uh, he was the president of Lifeway Publishing. If you've ever seen a Bible or um, a lot of Christian books in the bottom, it'll say Lifeway Publishing on them. Um, he tells the, the true story of a church that split because one member hid the vacuum cleaner from other members. <laughs> now, a couple things. I can't imagine why that would ever have to happen. Two... I guarantee you that was not the real reason the church split, but rather the straw that broke the camel's back. But what it shows is that we're just broken people. Humans, in their brokenness, we struggle to get along, and we will look for almost any reason to be divisive and to to split up. We like people that agree with us, and we will run from people who don't. And so we don't want to be a people of unity and peace. It is not a natural thing for us. This is why Jesus asks the Father to make us one. Because on our own, we will not be able to pull it off just by sheer will of force. Unity is a gift from God. And I started thinking about this. I'm like, okay, if it's a gift from God and we're not united at all, is it just not a very good gift like, is it like, God, your gift didn't work? Like, did God forget to put the batteries in the unity before he handed it to us, and so we get this thing that doesn't really turn on the way we want it to? Like, what's, what's the problem? Like, why did we miss it? Well, he goes on to talk a little bit more about how we receive unity in the rest of verse 21. So he prays, Father, I pray that they may all be one. All these believers throughout the centuries, I pray that you would make them one. Just as you, Father are in me, and I in you, I pray that they also may be in us. So Jesus reveals that we actually get to enter in somehow into this deep relationship with God, with God the Father, God the Son. And in Ephesians that uh, that we read earlier, it talks about how we are in this unity comes from God the Spirit. So we get to enter into this relationship with God. And, And that's where our unity is going to come from. Unity will come when we develop a closeness with God. And the closer we get to our God, our Creator, our amazing, amazing Creator, the more we will be able to be people of unity. Because Jesus made it possible. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins and all that, right? And we get to be forgiven, and we get to enter into a relationship with God that sin just simply wouldn't permit. And we get to become in God when, as believers, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends after he returned to heaven. And so with the Spirit of God living in us, the Spirit then gets to start working on our hearts 
and shaping us and making you and me more like Jesus. He helps us be people who are grown and purified. He sanctifies us. Sanctified is just a fancy church word for meaning he makes us more holy. He makes us people who are more set apart to love and and live like Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit uh, does these things, makes us into the people who can be people of unity. And as we deepen this relationship with God and surrender more daily to the Spirit, we grow in the traits that help us be people of unity. Humility, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, grace, all of those things. This is why unity comes through our closeness with God, because the closer you are with God, the more you've surrendered to the work the Spirit is going to do in your life. And um, and again, the more you become a person that can promote that kind of unity. And as we go on through these weeks, we'll kind of talk about, like, what does that look like? What, kind, what are the traits? Like, what do I need to do to kind of help facilitate this? Even in uh, Ephesians, it says, uh, Paul tells us to maintain the unity. Again, another hint that we're not going to just figure it out. It's a gift from God. But there's things we can do as people, you know, steps we can take to help facilitate this unity spreading around the church family. Um, so we'll talk about all that stuff and the list of behaviors you and I need to have and all of that. Um, but as since we are just kind of introducing the topic today, I want you just to remember two things as you leave today. Two things. One, our unity is incredibly important to God. Just, it's so important to him, and we've not valued it that way. We need to take it seriously. It's not an option. Instead of spending time um, praying, uh, God, this torture is going to hurt. Please help me get out of this crucifixion. Jesus put that away and prayed for you and me to be united. That should tell us something. And secondly, the closer we are to God, the closer we will be to each other. That means, and this is interesting, that means that your spiritual growth is important to the church. Uh, we kind of, in our very individual world, visual, in, hyper-individualized world, we have this idea that I come to church and it makes me feel good. If I grow spiritually, it makes me a better person, a better this, a better th- It makes me more content with life. It gives me a good feeling. It makes me feel at peace. And we kind of make it all about how it makes us feel and how it makes us live. But if unity is super important and you have to grow up to be a person of unity, that means you growing up is important to the church. Me growing up is important to the church because the more immature we are, the more likely we are to be self-focused. I want my way. My way's right. Your way's wrong. Fine. Go start a new church down the street. I don't like you. Anyway, we, the more likely we are to have that very divisive mindset that, again, is everywhere in our world. Our world loves that right now. And so we have to value our growth, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our church family. Because as we grow to be people of love and forgiveness and grace, unity is going to be a little easier as we go. So you and I must take responsibility to make sure we are doing things to grow our faith. Again, not just for us, but for our church family. And this is things like reading the Bible, praying, regular prayer, uh, things like you can get in a growth group. You get both um, Bible study and relationships gives you a chance to maybe actually start to know and love those people you're supposed to be united with. Maybe you start serving. You serve next to people. Again, maybe you'll start to love that person that you're supposed to be united with. Build relationships. And there's a lot more things that you could do to grow your faith. Um, But I've come to the conclusion that we just can't ignore it anymore. We can't ignore unity. Um, And it matters to God 
so much that it has got to start mattering to us. It applies to how we treat each other, but also how we treat Christians in other churches. Uh, Many of you might not know this, but the Christian church, what a generic name for a church, right? It tells you nothing. What's Christian mean? Is that Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran? What are we? Like, are we just like freewheeling hippies? Like, what, is the, what does Christian church mean? Like, but the Christian church, it started out not to be a denomination. It started when you had um, some Baptists and some Methodists and actually two different groups kind of coming to the conclusion that unity is a big deal. There's one church in the New Testament, but we got all these churches and we don't get along. So they dropped the names of their denominations, these groups, they said, we're not going to call ourselves Methodists. We're not going to call ourselves Lutherans or Baptists. We're going to be Christians because that's what we see in the Bible. And, and they, started, they started using this phrase. This is a, not exact word for word, but something to the effect of, we're not the only Christians, but we will be Christians only. You know, we're going we're gonna to just take this name of Christians, not any other name. They got rid of any of the, the creeds that they based their denominations on, and they just started being Christians. And they said, we are open to anybody joining us for our services. Um, we're okay with certain differences in theology, as long as they're not over the really, really big, important stuff that, you know, the Bible is very, very clear on. Um, they, they wanted uh, to have things like open communion, you know, that's something we do here. Anybody who's a baptized believer can come in here from any church background and take communion with us any Sunday. We don't police it. We don't say, all right, where were you baptized? What day was it on? Where, who did it? You know, we don't ask those questions. We just say, okay, this is, we're here to be a united people. Um, you go to some other churches, you can't take communion with them if you're not a part of their denomination, if you're not from their group. Sometimes even if they're, they're more localized uh, section of their denomination, right? But, but the people that started the Christian church movement, that's how it started, with the desire for unity. That was one of the main driving factors for it. And they, they wanted to be a non-denomination. And then somewhere along the way, we got to be a denomination. I don't even know when it happened. Here's, I have a theory. It's when they started taking surveys, and they would started, like, what church are you from? And we're like, I don't know. Like, what are we? I'm, we don't fit anywhere. And so um, now I'll take a church survey, and there's always a Christian church dash independent. We're independent. We're not tied down. We're on our own. We're like rogue. I don't know. But that's what we are now on, on things like that. We're Christian church independent is what shows up. And so, um, but the idea was that we wouldn't be a denomination, but that we would be a welcoming place for the church to be one. But even... For us, I think the Christian church has, again, not valued that. We've lost our way. And even though we were born out of a movement of unity, we've lost that desire for unity. And I think it's time we found our way back. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the repeated call for unity. We're grateful that you value us being one. You value peace and reconciliation so much that we would show this love and grace to the world in such a way that it would appear supernatural because our world would say, look everywhere else. There's no way people can get along this well without it being a work of a higher power. And that's what we strive for. And so we pray that you would give us a desire for unity that you would instill in our hearts this desire to love every single person in this church with with a, a love so big that we couldn't think about splitting up or walking away 
over something that was not mission critical. And that we would, Father, we would, we would be able to express our disagreements, express the times when we're upset, express times when, when something takes place that we don't like so that we can sit and have a conversation and work through it and reconcile our relationship to one another so that we can continue to show your love to the world. And the love that you show us is a love of unity and peace and reconciliation. We've done so much wrong against you, and yet you still opened your arms for us to come back. I pray that we would be that kind of people when we are wronged and when people hurt our feelings and when even the church disappoints us, and it will because it's made of broken people. So help us, Father, to be a people that value the unity that you've offered to give us through your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.